So I like to go with the thing that's in people's gut because I find that that's what they simmer on in the middle of the night. When their thoughts get quiet, this is what they come back to. And if I can say, hey, that thing in your gut that's always bothered you, the root of it is structural racism, you need to do more, then I feel like that actually changes something. Welcome to the Johns Hopkins School of Nursing podcast, Aging Fast and Slow. This podcast is supported by the National Institute on Aging Pioneer Award. Thanks for listening. We are Dr. Sarah Zanton and Dr. Deidre Cruz, your hosts. For anyone new to our podcast, we speak with scientists, policy experts, and innovators to better understand aging across the life course with a special emphasis on the sustained impact of racism in health, the impact this has over the life course, and what can be done to tackle these inequalities. One big question for health researchers is how to measure structural racism, the racism built into societal systems, including housing, work, and healthcare. Today's guest, epidemiologist Dr. Paris A.J. Adkins-Jackson of Columbia University, is among the growing number of scientists addressing this. In 2021, Dr. Adkins-Jackson and her colleagues published a guide to measuring structural racism for epidemiologists and other researchers, calling upon researchers to use variables that capture the multiple dimensions of structural racism. Hello, AJ. We are so excited to talk with you today. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Much of your work has involved measurement of structural racism as a multifaceted determinant of health and how to move that forward to allow scholars to capture what sometimes seem like opaque aspects of structural racism. Can you describe for us and for our listeners what the term structural racism means to you, particularly within the realms of historical, cultural, institutional, and interpersonal racism, and how has that definition changed over time? Oh, this is uh, quite the question. So structural racism is sort of two things for me. It's the manifestation of a coordinated effort designed to create and sustain privilege for one group by stealing the labor, taxes, intellect, and resources of others. And then structural racism is also a system that reveals some pivotal, ugly human characteristics that we are too in denial to really grapple with. And for me, the root of that issue is really greed. Mm. And so then we must design systems that justify those differences between groups, why one group needs to have more versus another group. And that's just my sort of spiel on structural racism. But what I actually use in the literature is uh, is rooted in people who've come before me, because I feel like structural racism can be very ahistorical. So it's important as scholars that we are rooted in history. So I use a mix of Kamara Jones's definition of racism with Zinzi Bailey's definition of structural racism. So Kamara Jones in the early 2000s talks about racism being interpersonal, talks about it being internalized, and then she talks about it being institutional. 
institutional racism becomes institutionalized racism in the literature. And then that transitions into what we know now as structural racism, where Zinzi picks up sort of the torch and adds to it that it's multidimensional. So it's multiple tentacles or operations of a structure that tell its various organizations to discriminate based on a particular criteria. That criteria in this case happens to be race. So the system tells the police differentially treat people based on how they look. And let me give you the ranking system. The ranking system will be based on color. Hmm. So people who are darker, you mistreat them. People who are lighter, you give them better care. And every institution understands this rule so that then it really functions like a whole structure as opposed to one particular organization or one particular individual. That's what makes it so systemic. And that's sort of how I see structural racism. But to add some of Kamara Jones's nuance to it, she specifically notes that structural racism unfairly disadvantages people who are racialized as some form of a color and then it unfairly advantages people who are racialized as white. And I've always felt like that is the most important key to it because then you bring up conversations about greed and, and meritocracy and these American values that really are contradictory to racism, but yet we keep putting racism forward as if it really embodies who we are as a society. Mm. Wow. So as vast of a problem, really, as you've, you've articulated this definition of structural racism, just curious, you know, how did you become interested in, in structural racism kind of with this health angle that you focused on? Yeah, I, <laughs> I never know how to really think about how I come into situations because I, in general, operate off of sort of energy and spirit. So if I find a community pulling towards me, I just go ahead and be pulled. So I don't want to take away my agency by saying I did not intentionally choose to do this work. But I also want to note that sometimes I just listen well to what's going on and go, okay, I have some skills to help that issue. I'll help. And that's sort of what happened here. Uh, journalism is the first field I come from besides the arts. And that taught me how to write stories. And stories always taught me there's a beginning. And so that took me into anthropology where I got a master's because that would explain that history. It gave me all the post-colonial context to understand why systems were operating this way. But you can't know that history and not do something about it, which is where health comes from in me, me seeking public health because I wanted to really help the closest people to me stay alive and survive the impact of societal oppression on them. And then once I got really good methodological skills, um, I just fell into some of these conversations like structural racism it's been talking about measuring structural racism at the same time I came out of school with measurement skills. Mm. 
So it was almost like, oh, of course, I'm going to I'm going to just go where I'm being pulled. You want to measure something? Let's do it. Let's measure it. Uh, that's, that's wonderful. So, you know, you uh, sharing that you have this journalism background helps me to understand at least the approach that you've taken to studying structural racism, a mixed methods approach, which, of course, involves storytelling. And so can you kind of explain a bit more about this approach that you've taken and what you feel like it adds to the literature that maybe we wouldn't be able to add through other methodologies? Absolutely. This is probably my favorite part of doing this kind of research, mostly because I see mixed methods as an opportunity to bring in multiple perspectives. That's really what it does is it allows you to look at one singular issue from multiple perspectives. And sort of the way I think of this is structural racism can be intangible in its actions, but tangible in its results. So for example, the racialization process where people are assigned a racialized group, the psychology for 30 years has been working on trying to examine this process. And it's just it's very difficult to put your finger on what's happening flash by flash by flash. So, you know, shout out to all my psychology and social work folks, because I know they've been in this fight looking at neural scans and, and all kind of stuff, really just trying to see how the brain works. Even discrimination is an action. So it's a process. It's a process of making a decision and allocating resources behind that decision. And so it's hard to capture too. So often what we capture is the result, the end product, which is differential or disparity in arrest rates or disparity in income. It's the result of multiple processes. But even that's not the full picture because from a different discipline, they might argue the real story comes from the impact of that differential treatment. And so you can capture that through using more qualitative methods. And when you put all of that story together, now we have the opportunity for social and policy change because now you've put together a full story from different perspectives with diverse data. It's a fuller picture. It will never be the entire picture, but it's a fuller picture that we can use to inform the kind of change we need. Hmm. And, and so can you maybe give us an example of when you've used mixed methods to, to measure structural racism? Thinking about how, again, it's so much of a story that could be told, but just curious if you could share an example. I, I'll give you an example from multiple of us because it's never just one individual. I, like I said, I like to recognize the people before me, to my side, the people coming up behind me. We're all in the effort strategically together. And so I'll uplift what you're doing, Dr. Santon, and the interviews that have been conducted with community members, with key stakeholders, to really understand the experiences, the impact of racism, and then how that intersects with structural operations. So those are qualitative interviews you're doing with individuals. And then identifying variables from that that capture those experiences 
And then those variables get entered into statistical and psychometric analyses, specifically in my case, because I'm a psychometrician. So then I might put all those items together into a scale to see how aggregately, how they interlock, as John Powell would say, how that sort of correlation or the variance shared between the variables then impact the outcomes that we're looking at. That's using qualitative and quantitative methods. And it's actually a very common mixed methods approach because it's a very good approach. There's a reason we start with the community in science because it strengthens what you then do quantitatively. But we could also do other things with this, right? Like you could dabble in photo voice if you had quant data and see if the perspectives of community members actually had any kind of sort of similarities with the quant data you find. Ethnography would be awesome to partner with quantitative methods because it brings the story, right? It makes the story out of the quant data. It brings it to life. And those stories are showing us the manifestation of racism, the impact of racism, and that story can be paired with data to inspire change. And for our listeners who don't know what photo voice is or don't know what ethnography is, can you give just a, a, a sentence? Sure. Uh, photo voice is a technique where participants use photography to document whatever phenomenon is being studied. Ethnography <laughs> is in itself a mixed method because it might use observational data, it might use field notes, it might use surveys. It's both a technique and a document you use to understand a particular issue or phenomenon. And we often call that methodological approach ethnography and the document it produces ethnography, so. Right. AJ, this has been such a fascinating discussion. Most of the people who listen to this are either academics or people who, who like to think in ways that academics do. But for a person on the street or for your grandmother or a smart undergraduate that you know, how do you tell them about the importance of studying structural racism? How do you tell a non-academic audience about what it is and why it's important to understand? Oh, that that's a lot of people. <laughs> that's a lot of people. Okay, pick one okay. person. <laughs> I would likely not have to tell a person on the street about the importance of studying structural racism because they would know. As I've told many of my family members and friends about what I do, like I sit on the phone and talk to them about what I actually did and what I found and what I think about it. And they're often like, exactly. For them, it's, it's documentation of what they know to be true already. But for individuals who wouldn't likely notice racism occurring or structural racism occurring, I would likely tell them this. What do you see in the world that bothers you most? And what do you think the root is of it? Now, you might not think the root is racism. That's my particular perspective. I think the root is racism. But would you allow us to have a conversation where I could link the things that bother you 
back to either a racist present or a racist past because I strongly believe the root problem is the way we have differentiated groups based on how they look. And if this issue can be linked back to racism and it's already something in your gut that's bothering you, then what does that mean for what you do next? So I like to go with the thing that's in people's gut because I find that that's what they simmer on in the middle of the night. That's what they wake up to when their thoughts get quiet. This is what they come back to. And if I can say, hey, that thing in your gut that's always bothered you, the root of it is structural racism, you need to do more, then I feel like that actually changes something. Right. What do you see your next logical steps in your research from what you're doing now to get you to the next place? Uh, so it's not fair to say I have no idea. That's me being dramatic. But I do know <laughs> that I am guided by other people. I am so in the thick of the mission that has been given to me, which is measure this, capture this, that I often can't see what's on the horizon because I'm like, no, this is a task that's been given to me. Like, I'll, I'll capture this for you. You've asked me to do it. I'm going to do it. But I do know myself well enough to know that when I get on the other side of this, whatever the community asks of me, then if I have the skill set for, I will do. And can you see the translation of your research into policies and practices? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's the way I design the work. So in my, in my family, because I refuse to call it a lab, the Marvin Gray Matter family, I put sort of the responsibility on everyone that we cannot analyze data that cannot be attached to some kind of policy change or to document the impact of a particular policy on communities. There will be nothing we do that will just be for science. It has to be for the translation of science into actual change for the communities that we are responsible for doing this science for. Mm -hmm. So AJ, you know, you, you talked about your path into this work. What are some of the suggestions that you would give to someone who is either doing this type of work already or kind of trying to get started? What would you suggest? All right. So the best advice I've been given that I often find myself rudely giving to other people, and I am so sorry for how sarcastically this often comes out when I say it, but whenever I've talked about racism and being in the academy, my senior mentors have said to me, what did you expect? And I've always been offended by that. Like, what you mean? I, I expected respect. <laughs> I expect it to be treated well. What do you mean? But I think it was maybe a year ago I really got everything that was coded with that question, which is what did you expect? So if you understand structural racism, you know that these institutions were not built for many of us who are in them right now for marginalized communities. They just were not built for us. The policies and the practices still to this day all these years after Brown versus Board of Education show us that we were not meant to attend these institutions, let alone work at these institutions as equals. Mm -hmm. 
So when the institution acts accordingly, when it's racist, when it's sexist, when it's transphobic, when it's homophobic, why do we get surprised? But what I think the question, what do you expect, calls on us to do is to really decolonize our expectations, to really go, what is my responsibility in the face of a racist system? So when I come into this understanding, I no longer am allowed to just think about me and my feelings. Why wasn't I treated right? Then I have to think about treating right all the people who stand to the side of me and stand behind me. Mm -hmm. Because now I have a new imperative. It's not about you showing me my worth. I know my worth. I come from traditions of people who are worthy. I'm in an institution that will never see it. So it's my job to bust down the door and bring with me all the people who are worthy. And so I don't need them to respect me. I need them to make space for the new world that I intend to build. That's what I truly expect. And so I would ask of future generations, the best advice I would have is, hey, what did you expect? But also like... <laughs> Use those expectations to build something new because if you really think you're equal, if you really think you're valued, if you really think you're welcomed, don't wait on the institution to show you. Show yourself and build it for others, period. Thank you, AJ, for sharing your work such a privilege and a pleasure to be with your brilliant self. Everybody else, check out our website, nursing.jhu.edu backslash aging fast and slow for the articles and resources referenced in the episode. If you have comments, questions, or guest suggestions, please reach out to us at agingfastandslow at jhu.edu. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with a friend, rate it, or write us a review. Special thanks to Jennifer McCord for editing and sound design, and Rafe Reggie and Danielle Kress for technical expertise, Brian Fitzek for producing, and Tim Carl for web design. See you next time on Aging Fast and Slow.